No, it's a very serious time when you're in a meeting and somebody says, okay, guys, we've got to lay it all on the table today. Just everybody say what you, you got to say. We want it on the table. Maybe you've been in a business meeting where that happened. Maybe you've been in a family meeting where it's like, we got, we got to have a family meeting. There's a lot of tension going on here. Let's put it all on the table. I can remember our ministry staff years ago went on retreat and we had all sort of been building some little things up about each other through the years and, and we were told, okay guys, no, no more talking back here. Let's all put it on the table. And we talked about hurts and likes and things from years and it was actually a very good thing. Now today we arrive in Luke chapter 22 where Jesus says to his disciples, we're going to put it all on the table. In fact, another title to this lesson might be, you know, we need to have a come-to-Jesus meeting. You ever had one of those? You know, it's not normally good. Let's have a a come-to-Jesus meeting. It's sort of ironic that Jesus himself says, let's have a come-to-Jesus meeting. Maybe he said, let's have a come-to-me meeting, okay? No, they have to all sit there and they have to think about it. And let's go to Luke 22. He'll set it up in the first few verses about what's going on. Now, the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. And the chief priests and teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. Now, we remember last week when Jesus turned things over in the temple, that was the last straw. They're ready to to get him out of the way. But here's their problem. They were afraid of the people. I mean, Jerusalem is packed with thousands of people for the Passover. You know, if if they go arrest Jesus in front of the people, they've got a riot. And so they don't quite know what to do. It appears that Jesus would, would go out and teach the crowd during the day, and then he'd go hide out at night, and they didn't know where he was. But there was somebody who did. Verse 3, Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, One of the twelve, here's the point, this is one of the twelve, this is one of the apostles, and Satan enters him. That's very mysterious to me. I don't know if Satan at that moment became demon-possessed, or if this was just finally the moment after lots of problems, Satan just surrendered his control to Satan. But there's there's a pivotal moment here where Satan says, you know what? I'm going through with it. I'm going to do this. So, look at verse 4. Judas went to the chief priests and the officials of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted. Why? Because Judas knows where Jesus hides. They can arrest Jesus without being in front of the people. And so they're delighted, and they agreed to give him money. Judas has a money issue. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. So, they go now to this room where they're going to take the Passover together. Look what happens in verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. So, the Passover is a big deal, guys. 
The Passover is the biggest day in the Jewish calendar because it's the day you commemorate and you celebrate the day that God passed over the Jewish families and killed the firstborn of the Egyptians and freed you out of bondage. And so this is the day they prepared for. And and so he says to Peter and John, I want you to go in and get things ready, okay? And there's a lot of details to how they would have to get things ready. So, uh, where do we prepare? Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house he enters. Now, stop. What? How is this a sign, a man carrying a jar of water on his head? Listen to me, guys, not not chauvinistic here. But in Jesus' day, men did not carry water on their heads, only women. It's like in our very biblical house, only Stephanie carries the water jar on her head. (laughs) I should not have said that. I'm in trouble already. All right. So they see this man carrying this water jar, and that, that's the sign that you need to go talk to him. And so they go to the teacher, go to the owner of the house, and they say, the teacher asks, where is the guest room? Jesus has got this all preordained and set up. Where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things, the man, the room, just as Jesus told them, so they prepare for the Passover. Now, this is a big job. There's a lot of preparation for this meal. First thing they've got to do is they've got to go find this room. They've got to clean all the yeast and leaven out. They've got to purchase the lamb. They've got to purchase the herbs. They've got to purchase unleavened bread, which was extremely significant for the Passover. Because for the Jewish people, that said how quickly they had to get out of Egypt, not even time for the bread to rise. And so that was a part of it. Then they've got to get that lamb. And at three in the afternoon, one of the Levites, one of the leaders of the temple, would blow a ram's horn, and everybody would bring their lamb to the temple. The gates would be opened. Everybody gets in there. They close the gates. And they all slaughter the lamb. You say, what is that about? You you, you see, everybody's always been sinners. And God's plan was for there one day to be a sacrifice that would take care of that. But in the meantime, they would sacrifice a lamb. And, and, And that lamb would take their sins upon himself. And then they would drain the blood of the lamb there. And they would sprinkle the blood on the the altar there in the temple, signifying forgiveness. Now, you can only imagine, this was an extremely loud, noisy, crazy scene at the temple. Now, after that happened, they got the lamb drained, and they're ready to take the lamb back to their house. So they take the lamb back, they roast the lamb, and then at sunset, they begin what's called the Passover. And so, for Jewish people, this was a really big deal. And understand this, they took this Passover around a table. In fact, we get there in verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and the apostles reclined at the table. 
And that day you laid around a table, okay? And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Listen, my friends, the key to this passage is to put yourself in the mood of what's going on here. In just a few hours, Jesus will go through a mock trial. He will be killed. He will be abandoned. And so right now, Jesus has all these people together, and he's wanting to take the Passover with them. In fact, the words here, eagerly desired, are very, very intense words. They, mean, they, they, they literally mean, with desire, I desire. In fact, my desire is double. So in this scene, Jesus really wants to be with them. He says, I desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Guys, here's the mood. Jesus knows this is his last time with them before his death. His death is on the horizon. And, and, and Jesus is going to start laying things very plainly on the table. First thing is awesome. What's first of all on the table is Jesus expresses his love. Here's what's so cool here. Jesus Jesus could have been so selfish right now. He's about to die. But he wants to be with these, these guys. These are his men. These are his 12 buds. And, and, and we know from the Gospel of John that it says there that when they came in the room, Jesus wanted to express the full extent of his love. And, and so they, um, they, they come and Jesus does the menial servant task and wash their feet. And then he begins to show them and tell them how much he loves them. I mean, Jesus knows his hours are limited. I remember vividly when my mom was close to passing away. Her health was slowly declining over a decade. In the last two years of her life, where it was really hard for her even to breathe, anytime we had a family meal together, it, it really changed. Because before the meal, my sweet mom would get up and she'd always have these little pieces of paper with her notes. And she'd go around the table and she'd tell all of her five sons how much she loved them and their wives. Then she'd tell my dad how much she loved him. And then my sweet Church of Christ mom would lead us in a prayer. It was just this awesome scene where she just, it's like she knew her time was coming and she was not going to let us miss a meal where she didn't say how much I love you. And that's how Jesus feels right here. And here's what's shocking about Jesus is he's expressing this to 12 guys that are going to run. He's expressing it to one guy who's going to betray him. He's expressing it to another fella who's going to deny him. And yet, mark this down, he loved them all. In fact, John 13, he says he loved them to the very end. And so then, he begins to explain some things. And now, understand, we're in the middle of the Passover. This was quite an elaborate meal. There, there were four cups in the Passover meal. We're going to see Jesus, it, it appears to me, between cup two and cup three. Because we're going to have a cup the bread, and another cup, which to us is confusing. But if you understand the Passover, it's not. So look at verse 17. Here's the second cup. They've already done the first. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink it again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. 
Now, I'm not sure what the kingdom of God coming means. It may mean until people like you and I meet around this table again and Jesus is here with us. Or he might be referring to the great messianic, you know, banquet at the end of time. But Jesus knows this is it. And then we get to the bread. Here's where he begins to institute what we commonly call the Lord's Supper. After he took bread, he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of you. I'm about to be the sacrifice. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, This is the cup, is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. There's a new covenant of grace that I am instituting by the shedding of my blood. So Jesus lays it all on the table. And the second point here is Jesus explained his death. He said, I want you to know what my death is going to mean. And for Jewish people, this, this, man, this resonated. And here's the first point here. He is the ultimate Passover lamb. You, you see, uh, the, the theological words here would be, he's a, a substitutionary atonement. In other words, uh, the, the sins of someone they deserve to pay for were thrown on the lamb. And now the ultimate Passover lamb. This is a fascinating side point here. Remember who went and set up this deal? It was John and Peter. They're the only two writers in the New Testament who refer to Jesus as the Passover lamb, as the lamb of God. They were a part of it. And so now Jesus becomes the ultimate Passover lamb. He is going to be the one who literally can bear, because of his perfections, all the sins of the world. And Jesus says to us, we, we should never forget this. And that's why he begins here what we call communion, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. We must never forget. My friends, in Christianity, this is the holiest of sacraments. Because it's the place we remember where everything changed. And guys, let me just be honest with you. That's, that's one thing I really love about Churches of Christ is that it's our practice to take communion every Sunday. Because as, as we read through the New Testament, honestly, I think you could take communion more than just on Sunday. But certainly the church, when they met, this was the center of what they did. This was the, this was the sacrament where they were reminded of the grace of God. And so I love that about our churches. In fact, not to be critical... But if you're going to cut anything from your service, this should be the last thing. Now, what bothers me in Churches of Christ is what we've made it out to be. What I don't like is we forgot this was a communal meal. The, the Lord's Supper was instituted, you guys, in the middle of a meal that lasted hours. It was in the middle of discussion and reliving and retelling the story of God. They, they would not know our concept that communion's my bubble time with God and don't you dare interrupt what I'm doing with God because this is just about me and God. No, it is about you and God, but it's about all of us and God. You know, many of us grew up in Churches of Christ where, don't dare interrupt that time. That's why some of you got mad when they started singing during communion. Because it was like, they're interrupting my time that i got to be all by myself. No, it's a time for us to be together. And second, what bothers me about our traditional way 
is that we have forgotten that it's a celebration. Maybe I, I heard wrong, but what I heard growing up is this is my time to get really, 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 really sad about what happened to Jesus. Because that doesn't fit the picture here. Because listen, this is not the sacrifice time. This is the table time. Here's a parallel. The lamb was sacrificed to take their sin in the temple. That was sad. When you took the lamb and you had the meal at the home, that was a happy time. That's where you celebrated the story of God and the intervention of God in your life and your salvation from slavery. And guys, communion's the same way. We're not back at the cross during the cross. That happened. One sacrifice for everybody. We are landing in just a few moments, guys, at the meal. Well, you're not sad. Oh, you remember what happened? And there may be some sadness there, but more than anything, you celebrate the story of God and the benefits of the sacrifice. And so that's why what we do in a few moments is so extremely important. So Jesus tells them about that. And then Jesus begins to really put some things on the table about them. Verse 21. But the hand of him who's going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it's been decreed, but woe to the man that betrays him. They begin to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Let's stop there for a second. Jesus now just sort of drops a bomb. Okay, guys, I've been loving all over you guys, but let me tell you, one of you is going to betray me. And woe to the one who does it. And they're thinking, great day, who could this be? Who in the world is going to be the one who betrays him? So it's pretty, pretty, pretty sad at that point. And then you've got to go with me to verse 24, because this, this, this is a jump that I have a hard time imagining. They're talking, Jesus talking about who's going to betray him. Then in verse 24, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Is that, is that crazy? Jesus says one of you is going to blow it really, really, really bad. And, and they're able to jump over to, hey, I wonder who's the best one of us. It's a crazy jump. It's like, you know, you just got on to one of your children, you know, you know, and then they start talking about who's the best video game player. And you're like, man, they're just, they're just completely missing the point. And so this gives Jesus another opportunity just to lay some things on the table. Jesus now exalts true greatness. They're arguing about who's the greatest, and Jesus says, you guys have got it all wrong. As long as you've been with me, you're still misunderstanding leadership and greatness. In fact, the message translation says in the next few verses, Who would you rather be? The one who eats at the table or the one who serves the people eating at the table? That's a pretty easy question for us. You'd rather be the people at the table who are getting served? Or you'd rather be the servants serving? And of course, we're all, if we didn't know about Jesus, can raise our hand and say, 
I'd rather be the one being served. And Jesus says, you guys have got it all wrong. Greatness is not being served. Greatness is giving service. I've got a whole new definition of leadership and greatness. I mean, it's like this. I mean, I remember a few years ago when the Queen of England came to America. It was an incredible deal. And one magazine organized how much work it took for the Queen and her entourage to go around America. How many servants she had, how many suitcases she had, how many, you know, she had to have three or four different changes of clothes every day. It was all the way down to the detail that she had to have a kit glove leather toilet seat. Aren't you glad you know that? So anywhere she went, they had to change the toilet seat out for the queen. Now here's what Jesus is saying. Greatness is not having the fancy toilet seat. The great person is not the person sitting literally on the throne. The great... You get that. The great, the great person is the person who changed the toilet seat. That's greatness. So Jesus is putting it all out there. And then we get going down with me to verse 31. Now he's going to call out Peter, Simon, Simon. Fascinating, he uses his old name. Satan is asked to sift all of you as wheat. Now, I hadn't caught this till this week. Satan did not ask permission to just sift Peter. The words there, and NIV gets it right, is he's sifting all of you. Now, Peter's the leader, but he's sifting all of them. He's testing them. And every one of them is going to flunk the test. And then he turns to Peter, he says, But I've prayed for you, Simon. Luke loves Love's prayer. I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. Simon's offended. He replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. You're talking to the wrong guy. I don't know. In other gospels, he goes, I don't know what these other guys are going to do. But I can tell you what I'm going to do. Ain't no way that I would deny you. And then Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny, you will deny three times that you know me. That you know me. I, I love how the message puts it there. Uh, Peter, I'm sorry to tell you, but you're not going to be as strong as you think you are. And so, if, if you watch this story, here's one of the great things that Jesus does. Here on this table, he exposes our hearts. And really, we see two major characters that Jesus just sort of exposes. We see Judas and we see Peter. And what I would say to you and I is that all of us, we are either Judas or we're Peter. You say, buddy, don't offend me. I didn't deny Jesus. I didn't betray. Yes, we have. All of us are sinners. At some point in our life, probably even recently, we have sinned and rejected God. And so we have these two examples that Jesus exposes, Judas and Peter. Why does he expose them? I believe he exposes them because he wants their heart to get right. Now let's talk about these guys for a couple minutes. There's some pretty legitimate questions. I can't answer them all about Judas. 
Uh, first question, was Judas ever really a disciple? A lot of people would say no. He faked it the whole way. That, that may be correct. Others would say he drifted. He started off right, loved following Jesus, got money hungry. They put him in charge of the treasury, started embezzling it. Jesus doesn't turn out to be who he thinks he's going to be. And so finally he decides if Jesus is just going to die and we're not going to overthrow the Romans, at least I can get 30 pieces of silver out of this. So maybe I, don't, I really don't know the answer to that. The second question would be, did Judas have a choice? Now, there are prophecies that this was going to happen all the way down to the 30 pieces of silver. And the Bible does say that God foreknew this. So did God choose this? Did he make him? Now, I would say a couple of things to that. Number one, God has always used evil people to accomplish his business. Okay? And if somebody has an evil heart, often God will step in and use it. Second, God is so different than us. It's hard for us to, to put this on him because God is above time. See, see we live in, in linear time. Okay, here you got B.C. 700 and now we're at A.D. 2018. And we, we look at God is above time. God is timeless. So when God looks at time, he looks at, he knows everything that has happened, and just as well, he knows everything that will happen. But foreknowledge is not making it happen. In other words, you and I stand here, and we, like God, can look forward, we can look backward. I can go, you know what, back in the 1940s, Adolf Hitler killed six million Jews. I know that. Well, does that mean I decided it? No. And for God to go, you know what, I know what Judas is going to do. Does that mean that God made him? I don't think so. In fact, the Bible always holds Judas responsible. Did you hear the verse we just read just a moment ago? What he said to Judas, he said, woe to the man who does this. Now, if God has preordained this and made it happen, how in the world could he be mad at Judas? For what he made him do. And then we get over to Judas's suicide. In Acts chapter 1, verse 18, he says, He had the payment he received from his wickedness. Not God's wickedness, not God's decision. Peter's wickedness. So I, I don't know if he was ever a disciple, but I, I am assured that he had a choice. God's not cruel. God does not make people go to hell. So, you can be Judas, or you can be Peter. We all blow it, and then how do we react? Now, quickly, before we close out, just for a minute, I want to go in a different direction. I want you to look under the table. We've seen everything laid out on the table. Jesus is holding back nothing. But under the table, write this down. In the decisive war between Jesus and Satan, Jesus is in control. It appears that everything is out of control. Jesus is about to be dead. His disciples are running. 
Judas is betrayed. Peter is denied. But if you read the story closely, Jesus is complete control. He gives the man to signal where the room is. He's already arranged the room. He knows the people that will disappoint him. Even in the middle of this, he's not stopping teaching. Even in the middle of knowing what these guys are going to do, he's still loving them. So, often when it looks like things are out of control, remember this story? God was manipulating everybody and everything in this story to lead to our salvation. And if your life looks out of control this morning, I want to remind you that beneath that, you may not see it right now, it might look the opposite, God's in control. But there's one more thing Jesus put on this table that I I don't want you to walk out of here without knowing. Is that on this table, Jesus extends his grace. I think one of the coolest scenes of all the Bible is when Jesus is looking to Peter, the guy that won't even admit that he knows him. Jesus says, I'm praying for you. You're praying for the guy that, yep, I'm praying for you. And I'm so confident of my prayers that you will come back. Boy, isn't that cool? So right in the middle of this with these, you know, out-of-control disciples who won't stand up for Jesus, he extends his grace. Here's another question we might throw out about Judas. Could have Judas come back? What do you think if Judas had repented and come back and said, oh my goodness, I got so out of control with my lust for money. Jesus, I want to come back. Do you you think that God would have taken him back? I'm telling you, I absolutely do. Because I don't see much difference in Judas and Peter. They both experienced the same things. They both had seen all the same miracles and all the same power of Jesus. They'd both been loved unconditionally by the same God. Judas betrays Jesus. Peter denies Jesus. Judas wept. Peter wept. Here's the only difference I can see in the text, guys. Peter, in the long run, gets up, and Judas gave up. So today, I can safely assume we're all sinners. The question is, what's our response to our sin? Do we come back to Jesus? Or do we just give up and say, you know what? Whether we commit literal suicide or spiritual suicide, it's all over. You see, what what, what Jesus wants you to see in this story is that even with these screwball apostles, there's grace enough to cover all of them. He's loving every one of them. But it's your response to this. Baptized Matt Price this past Wednesday night. Man, I love this guy. And he's got quite a story. But I asked him, why do you want to get baptized? And he said these words. I don't do a good job running my life. He didn't use the word run, okay? He used a much more vivid word. I don't do good running my life. And then he said this. I need a new director. I need Jesus Christ. Peter figured that out. Have you figured that out? 
We're about to sing a song that we call Song of Invitation. If you're our guest today and you're enamored by this Jesus and more than enamored by this amazing Jesus, this picture of God, that that you want to come to him and you want to start life all over, just like Matt did Wednesday night, you can be baptized, meet him in his death, burial, and resurrection, and come out of this place a new person. Or if you have followed Jesus at some point in your life, but like Judas, you've just got... You just drifted, man. You just, you just sort of got tangled up in some stuff and it's taking you down a road you really don't want to be on and you hear the voice of Jesus begging you to come back today and, and you want to come back and... i tell you what, we'll pray for you. But let me tell you something even more important right now. Right now, I believe that Jesus is praying for you. He's that good. If you need to come while we sing about this awesome good God, come right now while we stand and sing.